You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. Tonight, I want to talk to you about how should we interpret historical narratives. Doesn't that sound awesome? It sounds really exciting. Okay, listen. So we, we started, and uh, last week, we, we talked about the different genres, right? Different types of literature there is. And tonight, we want to talk about the narratives, which is narratives are just a fancy way of saying stories, right? Okay, where there's actually people doing this. This isn't like First John is not narrative. It's somebody telling you, hey, this is what you need to do, or law, or prophecy. This is like, here's a story of... A man named Jed. You know, here's a story of somebody that did something right, and, and how are we supposed to interpret that? So narrative is the literary genre that communicates through story form. And in fact, probably a lot of what we learn from the Bible comes from this, because when we're little kids, you don't start telling them about, you know, um, the understanding of sanctification and justification. You say, hey, Noah had an ark. Ah, I get that, right? It's a story, right? And so that's a lot of where uh, we learn. And within the Bible, narratives intend to teach truth through what has happened to highlighted individuals, right? So we, we know certain things about what happened to them. And then we have to unpack, so what does that mean for us? So I want us to start by talking about narrative paradigms, like how they're put together. Uh, realize this, first and foremost, 60% of the Bible is composed of historical narratives. So 60% of your scripture, right, through 66 books, 60% of the page count, if you will, is around narratives. So it's story form. So that's a pretty significant portion, wouldn't you say? So, so we start, and uh, we've got God creating, and Adam and Eve, and uh, Cain and Abel, and you go all throughout Genesis. It's, it's story form. You know, you only get Exodus, and there's a little bit now we're starting to get law, but throughout, and you talk about the Gospels and what Jesus teaches, so much of it is, and then he went here, and there's a story of something happening. He interacted with somebody specific. And while the Bible tells what happened, it doesn't always plainly comment regarding the ethics of what happened. It tells you what happened. It doesn't say if you need to repeat it or not. And so a lot of what happens is, is that the Bible is trying to teach you a, a, a kind of framework as you live and follow Jesus to know. So if I read that the law says don't do this and I read somebody doing that, he's kind of saying, now imagine what's going to happen next, right? It's kind of like giving you a little moment to think about it and process it. And I think honestly, it's kind of stretching the way that we think about it to help train us. So if I obey God's laws, what's going to happen to me? If I disobey what God's instructed me, like what are kind of some of the possible outcomes can be? So if you grasp the biblical expectations, you can discern the worth of the examples portrayed within the narratives. So if you grasp what the biblical expectations are, uh, you can discern the worth of the examples portrayed within the narratives. So there are certain times that you're going to see something go, uh, I'm pretty sure this is not going to turn out so well, right? Because the narrative is going to set up and you go, I know that the Bible says this is not a good thing. Uh, but one of the you know, best examples, a lot of times in the Old Testament, you will start seeing certain things about, um, especially if you look at Genesis, right? Before there are ever commands about who you should marry and how you should marry, they're starting to get some really crazy families in the book of Genesis. You ever notice that, right? And typically, let's just say if a guy marries two girls, it never works well for anybody. It just doesn't, okay? And the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not marry um, you, you know, your wife's sister. But just common sense goes, this is not going to work well for any of us, okay, right? Uh, I have been in certain places in the world where uh, you can have multiple wives, and you don't even have to, they don't have to have name badges. You can just tell when one lady comes around the corner, like, ah, that's, the, that's your husband's other wife, because they're just like, don't like you. You're right, okay? Like, there's just something that says, 
Uh, you look at Abraham's story, right? Uh, Abraham, God says, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And he says, have you seen my wife? <laughs> it's not happening, bro. That's not going to happen. And he says, you don't believe this going to happen? And he's like, not really. And so they go back and he tells his wife, and she said, I'd, I'd love to give you a son, but it's not happening. So why don't you do this? You know my, my, my Egyptian servant here, Hagar, she's really good looking. Um, that's a trick question. Is it a trick question? Is I know it's, a, it's not a trick question. Do you know Hagar? Well, yeah. He goes, so why don't you just, just you know, y'all just have a relationship and she can have a child, but since she belongs to me, the child will belong to me. And Abraham goes, whatever you want, dear. Okay, you know, that's what you want me to do, right? How many of y'all know that if you've never even read that story, is that story going to end well? No. No. In fact, the Middle East... Um, the Middle East conflict that's going on today is still from that family situation. Did you know that? It all goes back to that family situation. That moment right there is why there are still people blowing up people in the Middle East right there of that issue. While religions are battling and everything, goes down to this issue. So I'm just going to say, if your wife ever tells you to, don't, don't, don't go with it. Okay, don't, don't go with it. And so the Bible doesn't necessarily say, hey, this isn't wise, but you're sitting here going, I'm pretty sure this isn't going to turn out well. And, and the Bible's making us kind of work for it, even though some of them are just a little bit easier than others, right? Um, within it, there are these narrative parts. And this is, I, I love kind of explaining this because when we read a scripture, and we're going to look at a few different narratives, it's helpful for us to understand there's different parts where this works. The first is what's called the top part. The top part consists of God's complete plan to bring about redemption in his creation. Okay, this is the big picture story, right? Um, so even if you think about it, there's going to be a top part, a middle part, and a bottom part. Think about like three like waves almost. Like here's a curve here, here's a smaller curve, and then here's the even smaller curve. The top part is here's the big picture, okay? Y'all ready for uh, the, the entire narrative of this book right here? God created it really good. We messed up really bad. Jesus fixed it. He's coming back. There you go, okay? Top part of the Bible. If you get that, you get the big picture of it, right? Okay, we, we following? That's the top part. This is the big picture. consists of God's complete plan to bring about redemption in his creation. Then we get to the middle part. The middle part traces critical aspects of God's plan, focusing upon God's people. So here's this middle section. If this is God's big plan is how he's working redemption among his creation. Now this middle section has to do with specifically how we interact with certain groups of people. Primarily in the Old Testament, it is the Israelites, the nation of what? nation of Israel. Uh, and then in the New Testament, it is the what? It's the church. That's primarily those groups of people. So if you look at the Old Testament, even though um, there is not someone named Israel till later on in Genesis, it's talking about this family that turns into a nation and all the workings of how it's built, right? And what was that nation supposed to be? They were meant to be blessed in order to be a blessing. It wasn't the end. It was a means to an end. God blesses Abraham. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob's name is turned to Israel. He has 12 sons who turn into 12 tribes of Israel. And the goal is now you bless everybody in the earth. And they just thought, we'll just keep the blessings to ourselves. And in every corner of the Old Testament, that's where it went wrong. But the Old Testament focuses on that nation right there, the Israelites, the people of God, how they were supposed to do this. Now you get to the New Testament, Jesus comes to the Jewish people first. And primarily, what do the Jewish people do with Jesus? They reject him, right? And then he says, all right. Even in fact, sometimes he tells his disciples, you don't go anywhere except the synagogues. You start there. And all the synagogues go, we don't want to hear this message. We don't believe in this Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Now go out everywhere. Highways and the hedges, if you will. Go, go anywhere. Start sharing everywhere you go. And so now... 
while the Old Testament focused on a group of people that was meant to bless all the people, and it started with a family that turned into a nation, now it's, now it's not geographical terms at all. It's this people that the jurisdiction of God's rule and reign is on hearts instead of a central location, so to speak. And so within this, you go, so what's the big deal? Well, in the Old Testament, when you get the book of Jeremiah, and it says, My plan, I have plans for you that are plans for good, not for evil, that's all about a people. It's about the Israelites, right? Uh, when you, you think about what's happening in the church, when he says, I'm going to give you the Great Commission, it's given to the church. It's given to the big picture of what's happening here. So the middle part. Now, the reason why I say that is, typically when we read the Bible, we don't think about either of those two parts, right? We think about David. We think about Adam. We think about John. We think about these people, these individual narratives, which is important, but it is the bottom part. The bottom part comprises numerous individual narratives that provide the personal content moving along the other two parts. So the bar, bottom part of the Bible is what you and I were taught as a little kid, right? Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, David and Goliath, you know, all, all these different stories of individual people. And let me tell you the danger. We miss the big picture of what God is doing and focus on the individual, and then all of a sudden the story becomes about behavior modification and moralistic adaptations to our life rather than what God is doing for broken and busted people. It becomes about what you can do. You can be brave like David, and you can have faith like Abraham, and these are the things that God can do. There, there's some, yeah, there, there's some truth to that. But at the end of the day, we mess this up so bad that we, we really miss what God is, is trying to do at this level. So the example is uh, David and Goliath. I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17 because this is probably... Uh, I would say one of the, the best ways for us to look at this um, together. So, um, if you think back, if you grew up in church, was David and Goliath not one of the first stories you ever heard in your life? Okay, all right, this is serious. So I'm going to ask this question. I want somebody to give me a few answers. Why do you think this is one of the first stories that we tell anybody when it comes to church? Why do you think it's the first story we start telling kids? Okay, there's a kid in it, somebody young in it, right? So, it's like, hey, young kids, you can throw a rock at somebody too you know okay there's like there, there's a kid involved what else it's, it's a, i think somebody said it's an awesome story it's powerful what else did you say big defeat, big defeat. it's a giant ball kind of sounds you know a little i don't know it's got other stuff yeah yeah it's a lot of people hadn't heard of it right so they oh yes yeah, unheard of like oh who would have thought this would come right so a lot of this we, we tell the story yep one more say it again yeah, very visual. You can see it, right? Okay, so it's, it's easy. You can tell somebody, and even if you don't, if we don't have the video replay, you can see the thing coming out, right? You can see what happens here. And so this is this is where um, this is where I want us to do it. It's a big chapter, but we're going to go down some of these things here um, and, and make sure you understand this. Okay, so at the beginning of First Samuel, um, they don't have a king. The Israelites don't have a king. You know who their king was? Anybody want to guess? Before Saul, it was God. They had no king. They didn't need a king. Up to this point, God had taken care of everything. They had priests, they had prophets, they had people that kind of did stuff, but they, they had no king. First Samuel chapter 8 comes along, and they say, we want a king. And they go, and, and um, they tell the, the priest that. He says, well, why do you want a king? Everybody else has got a king. We want to be like them. Oh, yeah, because... The Philistines are awesome. Yeah, it's sure. Like, what? Is there a better example? Like, no, well, the Philistines have a king. We want a king. Samuel plays along. So, what do you want your king to be like? I think Samuel's hoping in this moment, godly, judicious, you know, kind of reasonable in his thinking, big picture organizational. This is what they say. 
We want them tall, dark, and handsome. Literally what they say. We want them tall, we want them dark, we want them handsome. We want them good looking. You want them good looking. Yeah, it's important to us. We want a good looking guy leading us out. Okay, what else? He didn't have a lot of money and he needs to be tall. How tall do you want him? I don't know, just like the tallest guy you can find. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. We'll find a tall. So you're telling me you're going to put all your hope and trust in a tall guy? You want to see where this is going? So they get the tallest guy they can find. His name is King Saul. Says his head, he's got a head on everybody else, right? So here's my head, he's got a head on top of me. And everybody goes, oh, look at our talking. He's dreaming, right? Like, wow, this is so impressive. He's so tall. We feel so, so protected now. I mean, who in the world could ever disrupt what we got going on in Israel because we got a tall king? Isn't that ironic? Because 1 Samuel 17 comes along, and what do they find? Somebody taller than Saul. So how's this tall king going to act? Because obviously he's, we put all of our hope and trust in him. Well, let's just see. 1 Samuel 17, 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Socha, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Socha and Azekah and Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from their camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Anybody know how much that is? Look in your Bible. There's probably a footnote there. 9.75 feet. It's a tall drink of water there, boys. Okay, right? That's a tall, ever. That's tall, right? That's tall, okay? That, that, that's, that's tall, right? This is very, very, this is unthinkable. Now, notice this. Did God know that Israel's stipulation was going to be they wanted a tall guy for their king? And way in the background, he's like, oh, I'm going to give some extra sauce to this kid named Goliath, right? Boom, 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 boom. Oh, we're, we're going to beat anybody because look how tall I Who is that? This is Yao Ming's bigger brother. I mean, this guy is just absolutely huge. This is unbelievable, right? It says he had on the coat of it was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze slug between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Uh-oh, wait, did you get that? Who did he call out? I heard about your tall guy. Where's he at? I'm a Philistine. Here's a people. Your king is Saul. That's another people. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of what? Oh, so he's talking about people's, the, the people now. Middle level, right? Middle level. Yeah. Philistines and Israel. Now this is where this is at. This is about middle level. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul. King Saul the tall? You, you won't even fight him, right? You won't even go down there and fight him? No. All of Israel's hope and strength they put into a man on certain specifications, and God raised somebody up bigger than that to show them that's not what they needed. Okay? So, we think bottom level, David and Goliath. But actually, there's this middle level going on, Israel and Philistine, right? There, there's these two, these two armies that are going at it, okay? Now, let's see if it goes any deeper than that. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of 
Bethlehem in Judah. I wonder if that city is ever going to come up again. Named Jesse, who we thought was from Alabama, but apparently is not, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took a stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands, see if your brothers are well, and bring them some token from them. Now Saul and they had all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines, and David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry, and Israel and the Philistines, middle level, drew up for battle, army against army, middle level, and David, bottom level, left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went to greet his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. Here you go. And David heard him. Now, all right, you see what the, the writer is so eloquently doing here? He's been saying this for 40 days, but something just changed now. He's saying it on the 40th day, but what's different? David's here. Yeah. <laughs> and David's going... Y'all let him talk to you like this? He just came out today? No, he's been saying the same thing for 40 days. <laughs> Nobody's going out there to fight him? I mean, he's just baffled. Same situation, 40 days. It's different. What? Bottom level, David hears him. Verse 24. Men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him, were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, Well, what shall be done for this man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living? Whoa, 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 whoa. David's bottom level. Uh, Goliath is mocking middle level Israel. But David saw it as an attack against who? Top level. Yeah. Whoa, 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 he's, he's defying our, our God, and nobody's going out there to fight him? David, you're down here, we're here, what, what, what do you want us to do? He goes, and he, he sees it differently, right? They defy the armies of the living God, the people answer him the same way, so it shall be done to the man who kills him. Verse 28, now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Anybody had that older brother who's always angry with you for saying something? Okay, don't, okay. Why have you come down? With whom have you left those, listen to this, few sheep in the wilderness. Hey, shepherd boy, you only got a couple anyway. Who'd you leave your little lambs with, David? Okay. Who'd you leave them with? I know your presumption, the evil of your heart. For you've come down to see the battle. David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, well, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of the mouth. He rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be just like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. God. David didn't see this as a battle. David, 
bottom level, you can't fight against this. Saul's going, our army can't fight at the middle level. He's like, don't you understand this is not about any of us? Bigger picture, there's something else greater going on here, folks. And so, David said, Lord, top level, deliver me from the paw, down here at the bottom level, the lion from the paw of the bear who delivered me from the hand of Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. <laughs> good luck, brother. Okay, good luck. Go out there, tell me how it goes. Send me a note, you know. Then Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped a sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. He, his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. There's a lot. Stop for a second. There's a lot of stuff that people go into, like, hey, you know, the stones represent this, and and maybe the staff represented this, and, and the armor he didn't fit into, and, and some of that may be well and good, but I think this is what this is trying to get across. He didn't need any of those things, because this wasn't a battle about him. If it was a battle about David and Goliath, put on as much armor as you can get. But if this is about God being known, why, why are you even strapping? <laughs> like, what are you worried about? Get some rocks and just go down there and let's see what happens. Verse 41, I, I really do think the Lord is stri stripping him down to the bare minimum. Why? We don't want David getting the glory for this, do we? That'd be a waste. Verse 41, And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. At least Goliath noticed that, right? He's a good-looking kid, okay? And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his... Oh. Y'all starting to see what's happening here? Not Goliath and David. It's not even Israel and the Philistines. My God's bigger than your God, David. Whoa. This is what the battlefield's all about. This is what the battle is literally about. Whose God is stronger and therefore whose army is going to win and therefore these two people win. This is what this whole thing's about. Goliath knew it. Saul didn't know it. Goliath says, okay, is this not, he curses him by his gods. Verse 44, the Philistine said to David, come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. In that phrase, we see it. The name of the Lord of hosts, top level, God of the armies of Israel, middle level, you defied him, Goliath, bottom level. Here's, here's, here's what's going on. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Here it is, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And in this moment, we see what this is about. And I'll be honest with you. We diminish this story when we make it about, you need to be brave too, like David. You know why? Because this isn't about your agenda. This is about the agenda that David just cried out. God blessed Israel. or He, he blessed me. I'm a part of Israel. God blessed Israel so that all people may know there's only one God. And you are literally calling out and telling everybody that your God is bigger than our God. And all these people around this field need to know there's only one God. 
And so the battle's about to go down like this. I'm about to take your head off so that everybody knows that we have serve a God who does not need a sword, does not need a spear, does not need some type of armor bearer. He's about to do this so that you guys can get your heart right with him. Oh, than you, Goliath, your time's up. Okay, right, okay? But this is what the story's all about. Now, you see in here, and, and you guys, you, you know what story happens, right? What happens next, right? David just goes down there, just a rowdy little kid, throws a rock at him, knocks him out. And then what does David do? <laughs> Took the sword and sawing that head off and go, y'all looking for this? <laughs> right, okay? And so here's the bottom level. And what does the middle level do when they see Goliath's head? Hoist it up. <laughs> They're gone. And then what takes place throughout the lands? There's a message that goes out like this. A different type of God walks with Israel. Something's different about him. Your God's the God of the river. Your God's the God of the sun. Your God does this. Your God, but their God just, mm-mm. Something is different about him. And folks, that's when we get the picture of what God is doing. Now, primarily what we do, though, is that, unfortunately, we miss all of those parts. So the principles we've got to think through here is that to grasp the significance of the bottom part, you must read with the other two parts in mind. Does that make sense? So to get David and Goliath right, we've got to at least think, what's he doing in the middle level with the people of God? And how do the people of God relate to at the big picture, the top level of what God's doing among the nations so that people would know him? So even... Folks, uh, well, maybe we'll get to here in a second. But you just think about all this stuff. Genesis, Exodus, throughout the whole other narrative, yes, individual people, but there's something that's going along with God's people as a whole. But what are those people leading others to to understand about God? In every single narrative, God is the undeniable hero. He's, he's got to be. So even with David and Goliath, folks, we, we prop David up, and I get it, but who would David say was the hero? I was like, God's a hero. I, I hit the kid with a brick. I mean, like a stone, right? I, I don't want to say that he would take responsibility. I'm going to, def- I'm going to defeat you right now because God's the one who walks with me. So when we think about that, our even titling of biblical narratives reveals our bent toward making it about us. The way we title stuff, right? So like that story that I just read to you, we have a three-word title of that story. It is David, David and Somebody missing from that story that's kind of important to it, don't you think? Maybe. Okay. Give you a few examples here. I'm going to show you a picture, right? I want you to tell me what the story, what we call the story. Ready? All right. Noah and the ark. Okay. What's that? Moses and the Red Sea. Y'all, y'all are so smart. What about this one? All right. Jericho. Who's the one leading that charge? Joshua, all right, and our title into this, let's go back a second, okay? You're like, did you do that? No, I found these on the internet, okay? Um, <laughs> you got some time on your hand, okay, look. We call this Noah and the Ark, right? Who's the main character of this story? We give Noah credit. Who told Noah to build the boat? Who brought the rain? Who protected them? Every single part of this, God's the hero of it, right? Okay, uh, Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. Because <laughs> Moses could do that on his own strength, right? 
God had led them out. God instructed them where to go. God told him what to do. God pushed the waters back, let them go through on dry ground. And when they got out, all the waters came down and he completely swallowed up their enemies. And who is the hero? Not that guy. No. Moses had a stick. That's all he had. Okay, right? That's all he had. But God, it's a different story. Joshua and Jericho? Oh, yeah. Because the marching band is always what takes down the walls, right? Okay? That makes sense? Because the last time you were at a high school football game, the marching band comes down and all the bleachers just collapse, right? It doesn't happen like this. Who's the hero of this story? God is. And what we do is we minimize these stories and we make them about man instead of God. At every element, this story here is about God teaching people that he takes sin very seriously and he will pay sinners for what they have done. And the only way to be spared from his wrath is if something that is attached to wood will take that wrath instead of you. Storm is coming. Flood is coming. And either you are on this side of the wood or that side of the wood. You are either in the boat or you out the boat. There's no way around it. This story is pointing us to something else. This story right here... <laughs> I don't know if you think about it. We, we, we talked today about um, some folks that maybe received the gospel today. Do you get baptized in a couple weeks? This is a story of baptism. You ever thought about it this way? These Israelites have a, a mighty Pharaoh that is oppressing them, and they're walking out to go on the way to the promised land. And what do they do? They go through the water, and they come out unharmed on the other side. When you go, let me ask a question. When I have the wonderful privilege of baptizing somebody, right, and I put them in the water... What happens to the water when they come back up? It parts. It's separating. They're, they're coming out like going, we were once dead in our transgressions and sins. We're coming back to life in Jesus Christ. It's a symbol of what God's doing on the inside of us. This, this story right here, big picture, is it just because, well, Joshua needed some land? No. Jericho had taken over the land that God said, these are for my people, and they were pagan people dismaying and, and decrying out the God of Israel and God says I want all the nations to know there's one true God and there's a chance for them to repent. It's more than just Joshua and the marching band. It's more than Moses and the, the army. It's, 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 it's more than all these situations. It's what God is doing among the nations. So biblical narratives, when you think about them though, when they come to it, they do not intend to give every detail of a given story. Have you ever read something in the Bible and you go, I wonder what this was, right? Well, no, I always say about this, uh, I think it's Mark that puts it in here, but when, when Jesus and the guys are celebrating the Last Supper, it says then afterwards they sang a hymn and they, and they went out. I want to go, what did they sing? I don't know why. I just want to know what Jesus said. All right, guys, one more chorus of Just As I Am. I don't know, right? I want to know, like, what is it they sang? Is that important to the end of the story? No. I'd like to know it, but guess what? There's a lot contained in these books, right? Mark puts the entire life of Jesus into 16 chapters. And I guarantee there's a few things he left out, right? So it's not meant to give you every detail. It's very specific about what they're giving you. Now, since narratives highlight complex people, they're often complex stories, right? These folks are not normal and natural. There's a lot of complexity to them. And so there's a lot of complex stories that you unpack and, and start thinking through how they're all put together. And so when you realize this, there is something very important for you to understand. So when you go to the doctor, the doctor says you are sick, and he's going to give you some medicine. He writes you a what? Prescription, right? Take two of these and call me in the morning, right? Now this is what they used to say. Now it's take two of these and put it on my chart, and somebody will get with you in two weeks. But that's another story, okay? Here's, take two, here's the prescription. Take these, and this will happen, right? So this is what is very important for you to understand. When it comes to narratives, narratives are descriptive, not prescriptive. 
Okay? This is huge to understand. The narratives describe what happened. They are not prescribing always what you need to do. Because sometimes, guess what? There are some examples in the Bible you do not want to follow. You do not want to take two of these and call him in the morning, okay? You take two of those, you will not be calling anybody in the morning, okay? They are descriptive. They describe what happened. They're not prescribing, prescriptive, what should happen. So biblical narratives tell us what happened, but not always what should happen, right? Not always telling you what should happen. Unfortunately, it's telling you sometimes just what happened as you look through it. Um, so turn on the backside to give you a few examples of, of what that can look like. Uh, just because the Bible records someone doing something does not mean you should do the same. Okay? Some of y'all need me to say that one more time. Okay? Just because the Bible records someone doing something does not mean you should do the same. I give an example there uh, of Gideon's fleece. Okay? Y'all know this story? You raised in church. I know that you did. Because people will use it in this kind of way. Well, I'm just laying out my fleece and trying to see what God's going to tell me. Right? Okay? Now, now what, what that's all about, <laughs> so there's this guy named Gideon, uh, bottom level. Middle level, God's people are sinning like crazy in this cycle of, you know, just going back and all this kind of stuff, right? Top level, God's people are defaming God's name, and he's got to fix that. So he's bringing in some people from other nations in that middle level to kind of fix this thing. And on the bottom level, you're seeing judges like Gideon and Samson and Deborah and different ones like this. Here's the picture. <laughs> Gideon is one day... Philistines are near. He's scared to death of them. So it says that he was um, he was working. He, he was a farmer. He was working on the wheat in a wine press. Does that sound normal, anybody? It's not. Why would anybody drag wheat inside of a wine press? Because there are walls and you can hide from people. That's what the narrative is telling you there without saying it. He he brought the wheat into the wine press. He's working on it, and an angel shows up and says, "Greetings, oh valiant one!" And Gideon goes, "Who?" <laughs> Sorry, you're looking for a brave one? I'm hiding out. It's, it's ironic what he says there. He goes, hey, you're going to be used by God to, to help out his people. And Kenny goes, there's, there's no way. And I want you to do this. And he goes, okay, here's the deal. If you want me to do this, here, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to put out my jacket tonight. And if I wake up in the morning and the jacket is wet and everything, the ground around it's dry, I know that God sent you. <sighs> okay. Angel goes along with it. Next morning, you know, Jacket's wet, everything else is dry. And he goes, okay, 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 just to make sure, just to make sure, just to make sure. I'm going to lay my fleece jacket out one more time, and this time I want it to be reversed, okay? The, 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 the jacket's going to be dry, but the whole ground around it's going to be wet. The angel probably is thinking, can I just kill him now, God? Can I just take him out right here? You sure you want me to go? Is there anybody else you want me to go to? It happens, right? It tells you what happened. Is it telling you, is that what you need to do? Here's why I'm telling you I know it's not because what Deuteronomy 6.16 says. Jesus knows it. He quoted it. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. test. Don't do it. So you mean to tell me that the Bible describes somebody doing something that they should not have done and God allows it anyway? It was some very bad times and God was being very patient with a very stubborn, scared little boy. It is not telling you that the next major decision that you need to put God to the test and saying, okay, God, if you really want this to happen, I'm going to walk outside and I need the clouds to open up and I need the sunbeams to go through the cloud and write out the name of the woman I'm supposed to marry. That's not what God, he's saying, okay? Don't put God's in, all right, God, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, our heads or tails, okay, if you want me to go to the name. Here we go. He's not saying that. Now, Gideon did it and we're lucky that God didn't let the angel kill him. That's what this is saying. So I bring that up to say, 
be very careful just because you see somebody in the Bible do it does not mean that we need to do it. Because the Bible says in Deuteronomy 6.16, don't do that. But Gideon was so weak in his faith that that's all he knew what to do. So be careful there. Also, we want to search for editorial comments within the narrative to determine the author's intended meaning. So there's what I call editorial comments that when the writer is telling you a narrative, they're going to let you in on some information without just spelling it out because I think sometimes that they want us to work for it. Um, since we, we talked about all the, the good that David did with Goliath, I'll go to another person in his life. This is another story, David and Bathsheba. You go, is God the hero? Well, I think David's the main character in this one, okay? Until God's, no. Even God is in the middle of this, right? Sending the prophet, all these different things. But listen to what 2 Samuel 11, 1 says and see if you hear the comment that the writer is trying to say, watch for this, ready for it? In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Is there anything that the author is trying to say? Listen here. At the time that kings went to battle, where was David? He was at home. First clue right there. Something bad's about to happen. You just know it, right? You know it's going to happen. Where he was supposed to be and God called him to be, he was not there. Folks, that's the first place we typically get ourselves, right? And so this is a situation. The editorial comments comes along and sort of gives you a little insight into what's happening there. Also, authors often indicated thematic principles through the usage of repetition. Um, and there's something that happens a lot. A lot of times they'll use repetition. Uh, in this example, if they say something a lot, they're trying to make sure that you get it really, really close, right? Uh, in the story of Elijah, it's a wonderful place where Elijah says, I'm the only one left, and I'm going to take on all the prophets of Baal. And the next day, when he's defeated, he's like, I'm the only one left, and I want to die. They're trying to tell you something. Really listen to it. They're repeating something. In Mark, his emphasis on people's amazement at Jesus is over and over and over. They were amazed, and they were amazed, and they were amazed, and they were amazed. And he's trying to get you to say, everywhere that Jesus went, he was blowing everybody's minds, and you need to watch out for this. Now, really quick. Last few minutes, narrative pitfalls. Let me give you some stuff you got to be very, very careful with, okay? First one is this. Don't allegorize narratives. You know what an allegory is? It's a story that has hidden meanings behind every detail, all right? So the story sounds like it's this, but here's the hidden stuff I'm going to unlock for you. It actually is not about this, what the Bible says very clearly about. It actually means something else. Um, so we, we allegorize narratives. Narratives are stories of what God did, and you cannot improve on them by attempting to over-spiritualize details. Make sense? Like, you know, I need to over-spiritualize it. i give you a great example. It says in here, Origins, Explanation of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10. You all know the Good Samaritan story? Someone says, hey, who's my neighbor? Jesus goes, well, let me tell you something that happened one time. There's this guy who's beaten up, and guess what? All the religious people pass by, but here's this Samaritan, right? And everybody goes, that guy? They're not like us. Yeah, I don't know. He's the one who cared for them. Now, this guy came along one day named Origen, and, and I'll put this on your, your notes here. But Origen's explanation of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, he taught that the robbed man was Adam. Okay? Jerusalem is the paradise which he was going to. Jericho is the world. The priest is the law. The Levites are the prophets. The Samaritan is Christ. The donkey is Christ's body. The wounds are the man's sins. The end is the church. And the return is Christ's second coming. That makes sense to y'all? And on me either. You know what I think Jesus was trying to get at? Help people, okay? Be kind to people. Look at everybody, even if they're not ethically like you, and be good to them. Don't be like these religious people who pass over people. 
be nice and compassionate. If God's compassionate to you and you're not like him, then you can be compassionate to other people who aren't like you. Get off of your high horse, stop passing by people, and go and meet needs. Not this kind of thing, right? Where, well, actually, what it means is, what was this guy trying to do? Not do good to his neighbor. Let me try to twist the Bible what it really means so I can get off the, the hook, right? Right? This is not what this is about. It's plain. Who's my neighbor? Help him. Help people as you see them. That, that's what the message is. And so we can allegorize narratives. And folks, I guarantee you this. You're not going to improve on what God's trying to teach you. Okay? Find out what he's saying through it. Uh, second, don't decontextualize narratives. Don't take it away. Don't, if it's supposed to be in the context, don't take it out of the context and try to make it something else for you. Don't decontextualize Remove it from the context of where it was given, right? Because if, you're, if you do that, you remove it from its context, you can start really twisting it to whatever you want it to mean, uh, unfortunately. So if you ignore the context to focus on specific words or phrases or events, you will actually detract from the intended meaning. You go, so can, can people do that today? Absolutely, we do that today. I'll give you an example in Acts 27, 12. Let's just imagine, for example, that you were trying to figure out where is God calling you to? And you're saying, I got a job opportunity and I could go to Chicago or I could go to Fort Worth or I could go to Phoenix. Okay? Here's the three options. I can go, okay, what am I supposed to do? And you just happen to be in Acts one day. And in Acts 27 verse 12, it says, And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix. Oh, God told me where I need to take a job. Or either... God is telling you what happened to Paul when he went to another place called Phoenix because that ain't the one in Arizona, bro. Okay, right, okay? Like, God spoke to me. Well, maybe, or maybe, folks, this is the reality of it. You guys, we know that we can do this. You'd focus on Phoenix, and some of us would know that Phoenix may call us away from our family or our calling, and we go, yeah, but I want to go there, so there's an answer. Decontextualize. Make it say what you want to say. Just what the devil wants you to do. Number three, uh, don't moralize narratives, Right? Don't moralize narratives. Um, a narrative is teaching a big principle of what God's doing, but not always telling you the moral of the story is. Right, This kind of story we like, you know, here's the tortoise and the hare. The moral of the story is don't start running really fast, just slow and steady, wins the race, right? That's not how the Bible is written. It's not how it's composed. Narratives intend to show God's progress of his plan, not simply to illustrate moral principles. I'll give you an example in Acts chapter 15, verses 39 and 41. It says, and there arose a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas that they went on two different mission trips. And I've, I've told this group before that someone has used that verse to tell me why the Bible told them that they could get a divorce. Paul and Barnabas got such a strong disagreement. They went on two different mission trips, so I'm leaving my spouse. <laughs> Are you going on a mission trip? No, then you can't use it, okay? You cannot use it. Literally taking a, just a, a, a tiny little thing of what somebody did and saying, so the Bible spoke to me. No, the Bible speaks to you when it says this. He hates divorce. Don't do it. Don't go there. Do whatever you can to try to stop the proceedings. That's what the Bible is telling you to do. Not like, well, yeah, we got in a disagreement. Can I go like Paul and Barnabas? No, that's not what the Bible is saying. Um, number four, don't personalize narratives. And you go, I thought we need to make this personal, make the Bible absolutely we can. But let me tell you how, how dangerous this can be. Um, because I guarantee if anybody's ever read a Bible story and you go, Lord, what happened to him or happened to her, make it be to me. Guarantee it was never one of the stories that ended badly. Right? You read the good stuff and say, Lord, that's mine. Ah, oh, skip that chapter. Not, not me, right? It is self-centered to claim positive outcomes from narratives while avoiding unfavorable circumstances. 
so hard for us to say, I want this, this side, right? Like, if I were to ask you, like, if you were to think through, uh, would anybody here love if God gave them a promotion? We'd say, come on. I mean, you say, God, if you could drop some more money in my bank, oh, yeah, come on, that'd be great, right? God, would you, would you like your family to make, God, make my family respect me and make me respectful in the community? And let, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Well, that's the story of Joseph, right? After he had been beaten and thrown in a pit by his brothers, uh, did the right thing of integrity when a woman was coming after him and thrown in prison because she lied about it, forgotten in prison when he helped somebody, and forgotten by somebody else and finally went through that. And so here's the deal. We all want promotion, but we don't want the prison. Now, how's that going to work, right? This, this, is, this is the example. What does Joseph say in Genesis 50, 20? As for you, he's talking to his brothers. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I'm going to show you this one real quick, and we're done. Joseph, bottom level, right? Bottom level. You got abused by your brothers, and they did not respect you. And that's what the story is. Or is the story at the middle level. What's happening in Genesis 50? Joseph is bringing in his brothers and his dad into a nation called Egypt. His dad's name, does anybody remember what his dad's name? Israel is moving into Egypt. Hmm. Now, why is it important that Joseph was in this place? Because there's a famine happening, and all the people who were upon Israel's family are going to die of starvation, but there's a problem that's happening. There's been a promise that out of that family, somebody's going to come out of it one day. Top level, the Messiah. This family, middle level, cannot die. Why? Because Jesus is coming. So Joseph, on the bottom level, says, I'll step into my role of suffer if that means that the top level keeps going. And to keep the middle level alive, because the Messiah is coming. So I'll step in my narrative. So as for you, you meant evil for me, but let me tell you, God's got a big plan going on right here that you cannot even see. And one day, one day we're going to look back and say, yeah, it was worth to be thrown in prison. Yeah, it was worth to be thrown in that, that pit. Yeah, it was worth to be forgotten about. Why? Because Jesus is here. It's the good that's come about. And so for all of us, we step back and say, for all the good, all the bad, all the things that happen, you look at it and say, folks, even in the midst of our issues tonight, you go, oh, I don't wish this was here. But is Jesus doing something on top of it all? Are you a part of your bottom level of what's happening along the middle level of the people of God and what he's working out throughout creation? And we get to be part of that. Father, to that end, we pray and ask that above all else, we want our stories to be caught up understanding what the Bible story is talking about. So through Joseph and through David and through John and different ones who lived out their stories, it was always about what you were doing among the people of God so that at the top level that the nations would know there is one true God. And so for our individual stories, for our individual narratives, for the little things that happen to us, don't let us get caught up into just trying to advance our agenda. It's all about you, King Jesus, and what you're doing among the nations. So if our stories can be caught up in that, we will be find ourselves so blessed and so thankful to be a part of it. Lord, bless this church family as we continue to know your word and to make it known to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.